David once again finds himself in a great strait. Not knowing what to do, he looks to his only source of hope, God's mercy. This is the 48th sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel and chapter 24. 2 Samuel and chapter 24, the entire text, the entire 25 verses. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people how many soever they be, an hundredfold and that the eyes of my lord the king may see it. But why doth my lord the king delight in this thing? Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host, and Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And they passed over Jordan and pitched in Aor on the right side of the city that lieth in the midst of the river Gad and toward Jazer. They came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hadshi, and they came to Danjan, and about to Zidon, and came to the stronghold of Tyre, and to all the cities of the Hivites, and of the Canaanites, and they went out to the south of Judah, even to Beersheba. So when they had gone throughout all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people unto the king. And there were in Israel eight hundred thousand valiant men that drew the sword. And the men of Judah were five hundred thousand men. And David's heart smote him after they had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now... I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee? Or that there be three days pestilence in thy land? Now advise, and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strace. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Aranah, the Jebusite, And David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me 
and he gets my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said unto him, Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Arunah looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arunah went out and bowed himself before the king upon his face upon the ground. And Arunah said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And are you not said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here be oxen for burnt sacrifice, and threshing instruments, and other instruments of the oxen for wood. All these things did are you not as a king gave unto the king, and Arunah said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said unto Arunah, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land, and the plague was stayed from Israel. The writer of Hebrews, writing in Hebrews in chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, verse 16. By the same Spirit, the Apostle writes, For the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And once again is the gospel in types and figures very plainly paraded before us. The numbering of the armies of Israel and Judah sparked a dreadful consequence during some of the final days of David's reign, signaling yet another testing period. Now, as we have already observed, this was fully orchestrated by God's providential will to chastise Israel while at the same time testing David once again for the last time. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he moved David against him to say, go number Israel and Judah. But as much as this was a chastisement against Israel, as we've seen, this was also a test for David. David, therefore, decides to number his armies of Israel and Judah in order to assess whether or not his kingdom could advance even further beyond what God had already given him, even further into a global dynasty. 
David had already given complete dominion over all that the Lord had allowed. By this time, he had already subdued his arch enemies, the Philistines, who had once again sought to destroy Israel by sending their giant companions. David had been given by the hand of God, by the providential orchestration of God. David had been given the comfort knowing that there were men in his army, as he was now well in years, who were not only skilled to defeat God's enemies, they were ready and willing. They were combat ready. When the need arose, they were well armed for the battle, for the fight. There was to be no coaxing necessary. We don't hear David begging them. You think that you could be skilled for me when I get old and take up the mantle of, of the of the battle? No, there was no coaxing. They were front and center, very, very ready to fight for the kingdom. And this, no doubt, was a comfort to David since the kingdom of God had been built around him. He now needed successors. He needed men to come after him, ready to defend when the need arose. But David had forgotten Israel's history during the period of the judges. Because during the period of the judges, every one of the judges sought for a dynasty. Dynastic ambitions by any human were consistently frustrated by God. Even those judges which had fought valiantly for the kingdom of God, their dynastic ambitions were thwarted by God. Because he would have no human Dynasty. That dynasty would only be reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet here is David seeking to establish a dynastic dominion by numbering his army. That was his problem. That was his sin. And while the numbering of the armies was not a sin in itself, it was in fact a commanded ritual. It was David's motivation behind the numbering that displeased God because he wanted to build this dynasty for his children and his children after him. Now, even at the insistence of Joab and David's commanders, that this was a dangerous thing for him to do, as we have already seen, David stubbornly decides to push forth his ambition. We see this in 2 Samuel 21, 3 and 4. Note what Joab tells David. He says, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people how many soever there be, an hundredfold, even, even a hundredfold, he says and that the eyes of my Lord the King may see it. But why do you want to do this thing? Why do you delight in this thing? But David stubbornly, his word pervades the King. Of course, they're going to listen to what he says. The numbering took nine months, a little more than nine months, before David realized that he had done a foolish thing. And that was to his credit, because he wasn't coaxed. He realized he had done a bad thing, and his heart smote him. Verse 10, that he had numbered the people, and David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, and now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. He probably realized that this dynasty would would not be his, it was the Lord's. And whatever he did, he had to do it for the Lord. Now once David realized his error, God sends word to David through the prophet Gad, commanding him to go to David the king with a possible catalog of consequences for David's sin. And we see this in verses 11 through 13. Now notice, for when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So, of course, Gad goes to David, 
and he tells them exactly what those three things are. And he says, the first, shall seven years of famine come to thy land? Or wilt thou, second, flee three months before thine enemies? Or, third, there will be three days pestilence in the land. Now, you choose. So God offers three possible scenarios of judgment in order to atone for David's transgression. Seven years of famine, an enemy assault for three months where David would now go back into exile. Notice the enemy would go, was going to pursue him or three days of a plague. Now, what is initially fascinating about this scenario, while at the same time so curious, is where else has God given a choice as to what the penalty would be? The consequence is usually based upon the principle of lex talionis, or eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. When David conspired to commit murder, his penalty was the death of his child, blood for blood. When David committed adultery, the ramifications was that his own son Amnon would violate David's daughter and his son Absalom would violate David's concubines. Lex talionis. In these instances, David wasn't given any choice whatsoever, let alone was he consulted as to the penalty, either the penalty or or the intensity of the penalty. Where else has David been given a choice? Or where else in any of the scenarios did God give someone a choice of what kind of penalty they would have? So this puts David in a very difficult situation. He even even says it, I am in a great straits. Notice David's dilemma. If he chooses famine, whether it's three years or seven years, the ramifications would be so destructive that there may not be anything left of the kingdom. This famine might even perpetuate an additional opportunity for the enemies of the kingdom to attack, especially since now after such a famine, everyone would be so weakened by the famine, they couldn't fight, they couldn't defend themselves. If he chose to go into exile, he might lose everything that he had built. This would be the the third time that he would have to undergo this trial of exile and this great humiliation he would be plunged into the same situation that he had to endure when he fled from Saul and then his own son Absalom. No, but David is much older now. He's not that that giant killer as he was when he was running from Saul or even, even when he was running from his own son Absalom. He is a lot older now. This exile might not be a successful exile. It may not be as successful as it was years earlier. He was no longer fit to endure such a trial, and he probably knew that. David was also probably unsure as to what God's intention was. Was God actually going to finally kill him? Was he going to finally destroy David after so many missteps in David's life? Was God so furious that David was so disconnected with what he had been given by the Lord, because now he lusted for more, he lusted for a dynasty. You know, at this point, you think about David, he didn't know what God was going to do. He had no idea what is God going to do. No matter which of these penalties David chose, he knew that it would also demoralize the entire kingdom, especially since the number of David's warriors was quite now impressive. 
if he chose the plague, well, everyone was now in danger. Even David's entire household would be at risk for extermination. So it seemed as if no matter what David decided to choose, the result would be catastrophic. And so he does what any man of faith would do. He leaves it up to God to decide. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of man. There's a number of things here to be observed. First, this was not one of the choices. God didn't say, or you can have me choose. This was not one of the choices. Consider David, how bold. Oh no, I'm not choosing, Lord. Sorry, not doing that. God didn't give David the choice of not choosing. In fact, he distinctly commanded through the prophet Gad that David had to choose, and yet David does not choose. Another curiosity is God does not rebuke David for not choosing. There's no rebuke. God doesn't turn around and say, Oh no, no, that's not how it works there, David. You've got to choose. It's on you. Your sin, your choice. God doesn't rebuke him for that. Instead, David actually turns the tables on God and lets God choose. And as we shall see, God obliges. And God is able to make the hard choice that David was unable to make. But now the question is, why didn't David choose? Why wasn't he saying, okay, let's see. Let's calculate this thing. Let me get a piece of paper and write down the pros and the cons to the plague. Let me get a piece of paper and figure it all out because you know I'm a smart guy. I'm a wise guy. I know things. Let's get a piece of paper and figure out what are the ramifications, the pros and the cons of being pursued and going into exile. What are the pros and cons of the plague? What are these things that I have to, I've got to figure this out. So, okay, I, I'm not so sure I can figure it out. So let's, let's call upon my, my counselors, my privy counselors. He doesn't do anything like that. So why didn't he choose? Why didn't he call help? Why did David ask God to choose? Another question might be asked, why did God agree to choose for David and not force him to choose for himself? David refuses to choose as a result of his sensitivity to his own inability to think clearly. He had just proven to himself that his own thought processes and numbering his army and deciding on a dynasty for himself was wrong. What makes him think that he could now choose rightly? He knew that he couldn't. And so, because he couldn't choose rightly, he leaves it up to God. And we need to take a lesson from David. We do not, we are not always able to think clearly, especially when it comes to some of the most important matters that we are faced with in our life, in our pilgrimage. Pride convinces us that we can figure it out, that we, that we, could, we can make that right decision, that we can work it through. We, we know how to do it. We know what, what the, the principles are and we're going to make the right decision. Realizing instead that our natural tendency is to think without precision, we fail to consult God and His Word and the principles of decision-making which comes from the Word of Truth. And this is why it is so critical to be so well-versed in Scripture 
to be so well versed in the word of God that when we are forced to make hard decisions, we have the wherewithal to do so profitably and rightly and beneficially. In David's situation, there was no simple answer. Each one of these choices were catastrophic. One was as catastrophic as the other. And think about what what this means for us. There may be times, and there are times, and there will be times, if you haven't had times like this before, and you're not going through times like this now, you will go through times like this. There will be times when we are faced with this type of situation, a type of situation that no matter what we choose, the results might be catastrophic. When those situations present themselves, we must do as David did and look to God for his mercy. What is David doing? He's trusting God. This is faith. This is David where he is shining with his faith. I messed up. God's given me catastrophic results. But I'm going to leave it to God. This is faith. What David is doing, he's throwing himself on the mercy of God, knowing that the God of the universe, who is perfectly righteous and good, will choose what is right and good because he is a God of mercy. Know what David tells Gad. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord. Why? Because his mercies are great. He doesn't say because God is merciful. He's full of mercy. His mercies are great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. David puts forth two very important truths in this statement. Number one, God's mercies are great. In other words, they are abounding. Secondly, David knows something else. Man is cruel. Even when he shows any mercy whatsoever, the mercies of men are cruel. And by calling upon God to choose, David is relying on what he knew providentially concerning God's mercies, that he knew that his mercies were abounding. He knew that his mercies were great. Note how he is relinquishing his entire future, his entire life to God. He is going to rely upon the will of God in this terrible circumstance. David might as well have been saying, no matter what the outcome, no matter what God chooses, I am in his hands. No matter what God chooses, I will submit to whatsoever his will is. Do with me as thou wilt. And herein is David echoing Job, while at the same time anticipating Jesus. When Jesus said, Not my will, but thine be done. And when the prophet Job said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. This is faith. This is what we lack. Oh, it's easy in the comforts of our home when the situation is nice. We could trust God. That the sun will come up in the morning and go down in the evening. But in David's situation, this was critical mass. And he was saying like Job, though he slay me, yet I will trust him because his mercies are great. Now consider David's previous testimonies and how throughout his whole life, 
He's calling upon the mercies of God throughout his whole life. He's thinking about the mercies of God throughout his whole life. He's commending the mercies of God. He's encouraging us to look to the mercies of God. Notice Psalm 25 and verse 6. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. Notice tender mercies. Psalm 40 verse 11. Withhold not thou thy tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me. Psalm 51.1 Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgression. Psalm 69.16 Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to thy multitude of thy tender mercies. So here we have the multitude, the abounding, the, the many of the tender mercies of God. And then Psalm 77.9 Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? And then Psalm 79, 8. Oh, remember not against us former iniquities. Let thy tender mercies speedily prevent us, for we are brought very low. Psalm 103, 4. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Psalm 106, 7 and Psalm 106, 45. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies. And he remembered for them his covenant and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. And then 119, 77 and 156. Notice again, he calls the mercy of God tender. Let thy tender mercies come unto me, that I may live, for thy law is my delight. Great are thy tender mercies. Notice again, the greatness of the mercy of God. Great are thy tender mercies, O Lord, quicken me according to thy judgments. And then finally, Psalm 145, verse 9, The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercy are over all his works. Here's a man familiar with the tender mercies of God. Here is a man familiar with the multitude of the mercies of God. And I think part of the reason why he could be so familiar with God's mercy is because he was forgiven over and over and over. He wasn't destroyed even after he did such horrible, horrible things. Here is a man who understood mercy. So now we should ask, how did he develop such a sensitivity to the mercies of God. Of course, because he experienced them. But what did he do to become so self-conscious of God and the mercies that he had granted to David during his life? What, what was it that bolstered his faith to such an extent while facing these terrible consequences where he would just look to God and say, I will trust you no matter what. Though you slay me, yet will I trust in you. How did he develop that? Well, I believe the answer to that is he was meditating upon it all the time, especially after forgiveness. David had contemplated God's mercy to the point where he even rehearsed them in his songs throughout his whole life. He was singing about them. And because of these meditations, he was now ready to experience them. 
David meditated upon all that God had done for him throughout his life and during some of the most critical times of his life. How God was forgiving David, showing him mercy over and over and to the point where he was meditating upon it, to the point where he was going to sing about it, to the point where he was going to declare it and to the point where he was going to finally take it to task. Through meditation, David was able to cultivate a thankful heart that trusted God no matter what the consequences. No matter what. You know, sometimes we we ask, God, have mercy upon me. Don't let the bad thing happen. David didn't have that option. But David was trusting in God, knowing that a bad thing would happen. He just didn't know which one. That's trust. That's faith. And because he's meditating upon God, it was the contemplation of God's mercies that moved David to serve God all his life. It was the contemplation of God's mercies that energized the king in trust and service to his Lord. The key was meditation. In 1680, the Reverend Edmund Calmy wrote a treatise called The Art of Divine Meditation, where he stated, quote, The reason why the mercies of God do no more good upon us is for want of meditation. And it is also why the providences of God take no more impression upon our hearts. Because we're not meditating upon them. We're so busy getting things done that we're not busy enough being someone that we can say we're people of faith. David had what the Puritan Thomas Hooker called a serious intention of the mind where David was able to contemplate the mysteries and the mercies of God through meditation. The prophet Isaiah tells us this, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. We could say it this way, whose mind is meditating upon thee. Author David Sexton writes, Quote, Divine meditation has a multifaceted value. It provides a spiritual discernment, improves our Bible reading and prayer lives, applies the general truths of the Bible personally and specifically, strengthens our hearts by focusing upon spiritual truths, and provides lasting benefit from the dwelling on the truths we know. Meditation ties people's fluttering minds to their true spiritual anchor of stability. The Puritan Edmund Smith writes this. He observes, Meditation will lead to a calmness of disposition, a serenity of mind, and a certainty about the ways of God. Are we a calm people? Do we have serenity of mind? Or are we running to and fro? because of lack of meditation. The Reverend William Bates observes, he says, there is great inconsistency in the thoughts of men, but meditation chains and fastens them to a spiritual object. And that spiritual object is God and trusting in God in every situation, in every fearful thing that can be brought into our lives. And David understood that. 
He was fastening his whole mind upon God and His mercy. He understood that his mind could not discern rightly in this matter. And so, in full hope and confidence, he looked to God, trusting God, all as a result of his knowledge of God through divine meditation. But David, however, gives a caveat to asking God to choose. Notice what he says. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are great, but I don't want to fall into the hand of man. He at least now is telling him what he doesn't want. Lord, I'm giving you the option of two, not three, because I definitely don't want that that other option. David did not want to be subjected to the viciousness of man. Because he understood that the mercies of the reprobate is cruel. And so he pleased that the judgment would be anything but the full prey to the wicked. We know that David's faith and his boldness was pleasing to God. God does not rebuke him because David had had faith. He was a man of faith. As the Hebrew writer declares, for without faith, God cannot be well pleased. So God answers. God answers with a plague. And so the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. 70,000 people are slain, destroyed, died, killed. The pestilence was a fair move on the part of God since it placed everyone without respect of persons in the crosshairs of destruction. Even David and his entire household was susceptible to sickness and death. But when the messenger of God's wrath comes to Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of peace, the city of the king, curiously, God stays his hand from destroying that great city. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem, and just as a footnote, the angel here, wrath, the angel of the Lord here, is the Christ of God coming with his wrath. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil or of the calamity that is and said unto the angel that destroyed the people, it is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Arunah, the Jebusite. Now, this destruction is too much for the king to bear. And so David begs to have himself and his entire family legacy destroyed instead of anyone else. He understood that the calamity that had befallen his people was all his fault. His motivation for a dynasty was something that God was not well pleased with. And so David responds, and he speaks to the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people, and he said, Lord, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, notice, here's a man, a shepherd boy, who is now the shepherd king, still recognizing his oversight, his protective care of the Israelites. But these sheep, they have done nothing. What have they done? And notice what he says. He's the king of Israel, a man who wanted to be not only king, but the dynastic king of the universe, Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. This is incredible. This is is an incredible irony 
David's initial motive was to build for himself his own universal dynasty, beginning with himself and perpetuating throughout his family. After coming to terms with his misguided zeal and misplaced ambitions, he offers up the entire eradication of any future family continuity, any future hope of his family. From from one minute he wanted a dynasty and now he's looking at the destruction of his people. He said, no, 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 take me and my whole dynasty. Take everything. He's not only willing to give up any hope of a dynastic, Davidic dynastic continuity, but he's willing to forfeit any continuity of his entire family. His entire family, he is giving up his whole family line giving up for the people of his, of his oversight. God, however, will not destroy his own dynasty, which will come to the Messiah from the line of David, of course. And so he sends the prophet Gad with an atonement remedy. God is going to spare Jerusalem through the offering of David. David has to make an offering. The rest of the chapter parades for us the gospel of Jesus Christ in such incredible symbolic types and figures, it's it's hard to even miss them. Note the following sequence of events. God destroys many in Israel until he finally comes to Jerusalem where he is going to accept the sacrifice. Now, if you study the scriptures carefully, Jerusalem, the city of peace, is actually the city of God, which is a symbol, a, a type for the people of God. The writer of the Hebrews identifies Jerusalem as the city of God, which is simply another name for the people of God. Notice what he says in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. But ye are come to Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. So Jerusalem is a symbol of the church of Jesus Christ. Secondly, Gad tells David that an offering must be made in order to spare Jerusalem. And it has to be made at an altar, which is located at the threshing floor of Arnua, his threshing floor. And the prophet Gad comes to David and says, you have to rear up an altar in the threshing floor of this Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now, the threshing floor is the place where wheat is separated from the chaff, symbolizing the separation between those that are God's people and those who are not God's people. This is what was about to take place, not symbolically, but actually when Christ was injected into history at his incarnation. When Christ came, he came to separate the sheep from the goats. He came to enter into the threshing floor. And this is why John the Baptist declared in Matthew 3, verse 11 and 12, Indeed, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Notice verse 12. Whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor, his threshing floor, and gather his wheat into the garner and that wheat would be his people into the city of Jerusalem, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's what's happening here in the threshing floor. You see, Christ's coming 
was akin to the angel of the Lord's coming upon Israel with the plague of God's wrath, but sparing Jerusalem as a result of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Note verse 20 and 21 of 2 Samuel 24. And Ayinah looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And he went out and bowed himself before the king and his face upon the ground. And he said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee. He wasn't going to just use it. He was going to buy it. To buy the threshing floor of thee and to build an altar unto the Lord that the plague may be stayed from the people. David does not simply come to make an atonement. He comes to purchase the entire threshing floor in the same way that Jesus purchased the entire world for his treasure, the church. And we read this in Matthew thirteen forty four. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, the which, when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Now we can safely infer from the New Testament parable, therefore, that the world is Jesus' threshing floor, where he separates the sheep from the goats, and the wheat from the chaff. Finally, seeing the king coming to make a sacrifice, of course, Arunah offers burnt offerings from his own possessions. Here, take this for the burnt offering. You're going to build an altar. You're going to buy my threshing floor, but take my provisions. I'm going to give you my stuff in the hope that the Lord will accept it. David says no. He refuses. He says that he himself will buy the threshing floor and provide of his own money all of the provisions of the sacrifice in service to God. And we see this in verses 22 through 24. And the king said, in verse 24, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price, neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God, of that which doth cost me nothing. It's got to cost me something. So David bought the threshing floor, and he bought the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. So David insists on paying for everything out of his own wherewithal in order to appease God which is exactly what Jesus did by paying with his own blood to appease the wrath of God from destroying the world and from preserving Jerusalem, his people. Jesus paid it all out of his own wherewithal, but the blood of his own sacrifice, he didn't take it from anyone else. This is the gospel paraded for us here in these Old Testament passages. Jesus had to give his own blood to stay God's hand from destroying his people. And while David uses animals to signify the Messiah, Christ could not atone with the blood of bulls and goats. This is the intention of the prophet Isaiah when he says in Isaiah 53, 10 and following, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Finally, David builds an altar and he sacrifices burnt offerings and peace offerings out of his own wherewithal. Both offerings pointing to Jesus as the burnt offering the burnt sacrifice as well as the way of peace. 
we then read that God was entreated by this sacrifice and the plague ceased. Notice verse 25. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt sacrifices, burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was, and notice again, once again, he was entreated for the land. See, even now the land is purged from the sin that was perpetuated by David's motivation of a dynastic kingdom. And the plague was stayed from Israel. So now that David is advanced, well advanced in years, Israel and Judah are once again a unified nation. Warfare by this point in David's life is pretty much a thing of the past and his lawful dominion secure according to the bounds that God has permitted. And now David in the end of his years like what many of us will do, perhaps, reflects on the work of God in his life. And reflecting upon God's work in his life, he breaks forth in a psalm of reflection. We will examine that next when we continue in the life of David. And this we shall do, God helping us. Amen.